1: 657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com.
2: in the 21st century, hard-working people working hard for you and me, moving higher
0: time and time again, through the years you'll find us here, moving higher.
1: Hello and welcome to Moving Higher Podcast I've got Sean Hackett here from Hackett Financial back on to talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Casey. Super, super good. So far, you're, it's going to be uh, monsoonal Florida um, weather in the west has, has really panned out. and We've gotten, uh, I bet you this month here, we've gotten somewhere between at least 7 if not 10, depending on where you're at, inches of rain. And, and there's no uh, no stop in the forecast anywhere as far as rain goes. And, and fortunately, it's not been... You know, huge gargantuan storms dropping, you know, two inches of rain in an hour, type of deal. It's been all night, you know, four, five, six hour rains that have just been there. So looks like so far what you're saying is, is come true.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's it was a big forecast of ours. We made nine months ago, uh, that we would expected this flip in where the ridge would find itself and where the dry weather pattern would find itself. Um, just as an example, if you look at the central eastern grain belt. Uh, drought index. It um, is the highest reading for this time of day, uh, this for this date. Um, you know, going back like thirty five years. So, uh, two thousand twelve was not this dry at this particular date. Um, it was dry, but not quite this dry. So, this is a big, big flip. We haven't seen a dry central eastern grain belt literally since 2012. And prior to that, we hadn't seen it. So this is a big unusual flip. Um, and um, it surprised everybody. Now, it's still early. You do not hurt the corn crop in the first half of June. We've tried to make this very, very clear. It's a setup for going into July for corn and August for soybeans. And you know if you look at a correlation of all the driest first half of June drought index readings, it, there's no correlation to how it's going to end up because it all depends upon July weather. So, so we've started off with a very unusual different pattern, but it doesn't mean that necessarily the crop's going to turn out bad. It just means that the pattern that we have is a very different pattern. And usually Casey, when you get into June, these patterns tend to persist at least through July. Um, And what we also know from history is that where when ground gets dry, it tends to perpetuate more dryness. And where ground is wet, it tends to perpetuate more wetness, meaning dry areas tend not to get that evaporation, that humidity that give you those afternoon thundershowers, and it perpetuates a cycle of dryness repeated over and over again once that soil is sufficiently dry as you enter the summertime. So... You know, unless you have some kind of unusual tropical system that comes in and overrides those factors, you know, it's important to watch where the dry areas are because they're likely to persist, you know, at least through July. And that means that central eastern grain belt um, is is on the watch list. Now, of course, dry and cool is different than dry and hot. Dry and cool means if you, you can get a quarter of an inch and that actually can do a lot of good if it's cool. Because that that water goes into the ground, it stays there and it it does wonders. Now, if it's a quarter inch and you have ninety five hundred degree temperatures, uh, your miles well not have even fallen. It's gone. It's done zero good. So so we also have to separate dry is fine. You you know obviously a lack of moisture is part of the equation, but it has to really be dry and hot, and that's what we're going to be looking for later this month. Is are we going to develop a Hot dry pattern for late June into late July. Right now we're we're gonna we're gonna get a um, moderation in temperatures here into the middle of the month. Kind of a cooling down a little bit. Um, usually, if you go from warm temperatures like we have right now to something cooler, you tend to get some spritzing, some some very light showery activity because you're changing the upper atmospheric temperatures. So we would expect to see a little moisture coming into the dry areas, nothing that's going to be noteworthy on the deficits. But remember, it's going to be cool. So it's just, it's not going to get the grain bulls excited with that pattern into the middle of June. We're going to have to get there, and then we're going to have to look for a hot, dry pattern to develop late in the June. Right now, we're seeing that that is going to happen. Uh, A lot of our work is telling us we're going to get the warm weather back, um, and the dryness, you know, it's going to continue Um, and obviously if that, uh, perpetuates and we continue to see that pattern into middle of June, you know, I I think the difference between this year and 2012 is 2012 was super, super hot in June. It was just crazy hot in June. So it got the market excited. Like the second week of June, it said, holy shoot, we got to get ourselves going here. Uh, We're not going to, we're not having that kind of heat this year in June. It's, it's more of a mixed bag. So it looks to me like it's more of a 1983 chart pattern where you kind of stumble along into late June, and then they turn the hot dry pattern on. And then it's a it's a it's more of a July, late June, early July beginning of a rally than it is, let's say, second, third week of June. So this, to me, just looking at the heat factor says to me, this is more of a 1983 price pattern that looks to be more likely what we're going to follow. And if anyone follows that pattern, I think we put... 40% on the corn market in one month's time from late June, early July into late July, early August, that would equate to like a $7 corn market right now from where we are today. Just as an example, 40% move from five would be roughly give you give or take seven. No two years are exactly the same, but what I'm getting at is I'm, I don't think we're going to get out of the gate early as early this year on the weather scenario, because the heat's just not there at least into the middle part of June. That's going to keep the bulls, on the defensive right now in fact we could actually see a a, a secondary correction here in mid-month um mm-hmm. because it's, it's gonna be hard to excite grain grain bulls if you if you're dealing with cooler temperatures and maybe a little moisture coming in it's just not gonna you know it's not gonna get the market excited so that's the way it looks right now dry start but you know waiting for the heat to come back
1: yeah so okay right on all right so a couple things that we talked about beforehand um man. Uh, a few things to talk about before we uh, came on here was uh, cotton, and I got a question from a from a listener. We're going to talk about too, but you know, looking at cotton, cotton's gotten beat up quite a bit. Talked to some guys down south uh, yesterday, and I was just asking about the cotton pickers and you know how how excitement was there, and not a not a lot of excitement right now. But looking at this rain, and you start adding West Texas into that mix, and the amount of stripper cotton that's going to be put in there in Texas and Oklahoma. And up into kansas assuming that uh, where those areas are um where that crop is growing in those areas are getting some rain now so their planted acres could could start to vary a little bit there could be some other reports that come out of that i guess sean looking at that what are your thoughts on cotton right now and and what do you feel like some of the moves based around these weather patterns seen are gonna are gonna affect cotton
2: well, the historic abandonment that we've seen the last couple of years in Texas cotton that's made harvested acres just way, way down. You know, we're not going to see that this year. we were we getting moisture in Texas, they're go- so those, those harvested acres are going to be much higher. But the problem is, you know, I, I think sometimes people misunderstand. Cotton is a hot weather crop. It actually likes hot and dry to maximize yield, maximize. Cotton quality. I mean, it can't be bone dry like the last couple of years, but it likes it likes to be warm and dry with some moisture. Remember, we had a, a cool, wet 2020, I think it was. I think it was. And it was cool and wet all summer long. And we did not have a great cotton crop. Quality of the cotton crop was down, the yields were off. It developed very slowly, if you recall. Um, it developed, you know, we, we, we didn't start harvesting until late. And and we're we have a very cool, wet pattern. Now it's not the worst pattern ever. It's not like that's a you know a disaster, but it's not really ideal. I mean, you you really want it hot, dry with some moisture, and what we're getting is it's cool and we're getting a heck of a lot of rainfall. So if that pattern were to persist, you know, through most of the summer, it's gonna be an okay crop, but it won't be a bin buster. Now you'll have more harvested acres, but I'm talking about yield-wise, it'll be okay. Um, but but you're going to have to going to have large downgrades of quality. You I mean your cotton quality will be downgraded, which means that farmers that, that sell lower quality cotton get docked um, a, a dis- discount to the market for having cotton that doesn't meet certain quality requirements. So I think you know yeah the rains are good. Um, should h- hot weather come into the key Texas areas um, in you know in July, you know that would certainly Help improve the crop prospects. I don't think that's what we're going to see. Most of the heat from my work says it's going to be more of central northern areas of the U.S. or you know, Canadian prairies. Are, are that's where the heat's going to be this year. I don't. I think the southern tier is just not going to get that kind of hot weather. And so I think the, the the propensity of the trend is cooler weather is going to be the story. Not horrible, but it's just not going to be a bin buster. And so I think many that are calling for you know gargantuan production probably overstepping your boundaries here and i don't think it's going to ultimately turn out that way um, unless we get a really big warming up that i'm not anticipating right now
1: oh, okay all right so we got a question from a list a listener listener a uh, youtube guy you know watcher i guess um it is uh igor zenkova i apologize if i butchered your name there 4504 sorry about that if i messed that up but the question is (coughs) i learned about sean hackett quite recently and really i've gotten interested in, in him as an expert just a little request as the participants in the pod as he participates in the podcast here on a regular basis could he explain briefly or in more detail for the newbies out there about correlation relationships between all of the different climate and weather discrepancies he's talked about and fertilizer damage, major agribusiness activity. Um the question is caused by the bewilderment because of mosaics mosaic ink's stock behavior and in the beginning of the summer of the US so kind of breaking this down Sean looks like to me he's asked some questions about mosaic from a stock perspective and how they've started up high and went all over the place since then and uh, fertilizer cost um, based around these weather patterns that we're seeing?
2: Well, let's just stick with the United States. Um, There was never a fertilizer shortage in the United States. It never existed. There never was one. We don't have a fertilizer shortage. We don't need fertilizer from too many other people outside of Canada, and Canada is a willing seller to us. We don't have one. So all the dramatic increases in fertilizer in the U.S. was simply the U.S. producers' gouging us producers because the global market price was so much higher because of what, of the ukraine war because of the restriction of exports out of russia because of the restriction of exports out of china and so the the fertilizer producers saw an opportunity with a lot of hype and excitement to raise prices not because there was a shortage in the united states but because there's, this was perceived shortage globally, and they felt that they, they could get away with it. And as such, they did get away with it because as prices took off and as farmer incomes took off, they had more money and they paid it. And, of course, the earnings went through the roof. But now we realize there's no fertilizer shortage in the U.S. And now prices have caved in. All the farmer income numbers are crashing and burning. The tube of toothpaste has shrunk. And the farmers are saying, I'm not paying that. I'm you know, you can no. And so now the demand has fallen off. The farmer's only going to put down what he absolutely positively has to put down because he doesn't have the capital to do it. And so their earnings are crashing and their stock prices are crashing as a result. So, you know, those are fertilizer companies are extremely cyclical. They follow the ag cycle very, very closely, but they tend to be early cycling. Mean, they go up early in the cycle and then they crash you know, in the middle to latter part of a cycle. And so you just have to be very opportunistic with fertilizer companies. Their earnings are very, very choppy and, um, and you just can't fall in love with them for the long-term. You have to be, you know, there's a time to get in, there's a time to get out. I'm not advocating one, anybody does anything other than, you know, if you're into fertilizer stocks, they're not a long-term play. They're really trading vehicles. At least that's, they've always been that way. And equipment uh, stocks like Titan International, for example, a big tire company that makes wire tires and wheels for agriculture. If you follow their stock, they do the same thing. They go up and they go down, they go up and they go down with the ag cycle. So, you know, these companies are um, what they are and treat them as such.
1: Um, okay. All right, Sean. Um, one last thought, I think, when I look, taking a look at what we're seeing now. I mean, if you could kind of just sum up a little bit, which so far for this spring, what we've seen, I mean, you're really you're really kind of talking about the tale of two cities here for for a little bit of a lack of a better term here. I mean, you're talking about a spring season that is going to be ho hum type of deal, and then you're going to look at a um, a fall that could be pretty explosive. So, I, I, what are some of the signs that you're going to be paying attention to to see that that explosion in, in the marketplace?
2: Well, first, let's understand that the Fed Reserve turned screws on tight, right. and so inflation is crashing. The economy is suffering, demand is suffering. We talked. We talked about this on. I think the last time, um, and so that's been a preeminent reason for this eighteen-month correction in commodities. Crude oil getting crushed, natural gas getting crushed, right? You know, cotton getting crushed. All these markets just not finding demand. That that's kind of old news. We kind of know all this. China's recovery has been disappointing. They they had the initial uh, post. Zero COVID policy surge, and now you know they're sort of going through a a um, a retrenchment again. We we kind of went through that. We have those stops and falls. Sure. So the demand side of the equation is not fantastic, but um, it does appear that if you look at all the economic and inflation numbers, the Fed is done raising rates. That doesn't mean they're going to lower them, but the first thing you have to do with monetary policy you have to stop raising them. So if they come out in the next meeting, I think it's late uh, July, I think is the next Fed meeting, and they say, we're, we're done. We don't see any reason to raise them anymore. That policy shift will be the first uh, shift, and the markets will start to then gauge when are they going to start lowering rates. We have an election year coming up in 2024. We just got the debt ceiling resolved with no debt ceiling at all, which means the government could spend as much money as it wants. And it loves to buy votes and it loves to, and the only way they can do that is the Fed's gonna have to. I think I just saw that half the US Treasury debt has to be rolled over over the next two years. So out of the 32 or 33 trillion, about 15 to 16 trillion actually has to be rolled over into new debt at a higher interest rate. Well, well, yeah. I would think. We're probably going to want to see a lower raise, but before too much of that debt gets rolled over to save right. the interest payments on the debt. I'm just thinking out loud, you know, speculation, but uh, the Federal Reserve is there at the pleasure of the president. And I would say that uh, they've done their job, but I think that they're going to be in a serious easing mode later this year into 24. And that's very positive for risk assets, for stocks, for commodities, for demand. You know, banks have been suffering, Right. We know that they're, that because of the Fed's putting the screws on, um, a lot of the regional banks that, that really supply capital to seventy percent of the economy, you know, they're they're having a tough time. They have a a, a cost of capital a mismatch. Their loans are being pulled back. Um, but if they get into a better environment with lower rates, you know, they're going to start lending money again. So all so I would be looking for that sign at this next Fed meeting to say that we're we we we're cresting. And we're getting ready to to kind of do this. That's the first thing. Second thing, we know African swine fever has really depressed feed prices in China because they've had to liquidate. No one knows for sure, but an enormous amount of hog animals. And but we know that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction later in the year. So what I would secondarily be looking for is to see China start being big buyers. It doesn't have to be U.S. corn. Or us meal but just buy it from somebody in larger quantity showing that they're coming back to the market because they're getting they're they're needing feed again to rebuild this hog herd for the third time and lastly obviously mother nature um, always plays a key role watch for the month of july see if we develop this hot pattern to go along with the dryness i believe that we have an elevated risk and probability that's going to happen and i would also watch india I think india is disproportionately at risk this growing cycle for a they haven't had a major wet crop problem or major weather problem in seven years it's the longest run they've had of good weather i can't find another time they've had seven good years in a row um so they're due and last year even though overall weather wasn't too bad it was volatile enough that they had they got uh their crops came up a little bit short They held back rice, they held back wheat, they held back sugar, they held back cotton. They're now importing milk. Well, what if they actually have a serious crop problem? Like last year's crop, I went off by a little bit, nothing major. What if they actually have like a serious crop problem? You know, down 10, 15, 20%, which they can be down in a a, uh, El Nino driven dry year. What does that look like for a country that has been a major exporter of key ag markets for many years now, uh, I really think that could be another hot button um, that the market is not really uh, kind of focusing on as much because we just haven't focused on it for a while because we haven't had to. You know what I'm saying? So I think those two, you know, US July weather and, and India weather, I think could really be the catalyst that excite commodities, that excite agriculture again, and bring those speculators that have gotten record short, many of these markets now, to say, you know what? You know, maybe we're on the wrong side or maybe we got a little too aggressive or maybe we got to cover some or, you know, or just bring some capital some speck of capital back in uh, to our ag markets and if it's happening at a time that the federal reserve is signaling easier monetary policy and potentially a much weaker us dollar you know you could see the seeds of how commodities you know could see some improvement um you know June, July onward, you know, I think, I think we could see a turn in overall commodity. We're following the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index and the the BLS Cash Commodity Index. We follow a amalgamation chart, which averages those two together. And if you look at what we did is we came down and made a low early in the year, we had a bounce and now we're making a secondary low and we've been kind of going sideways on the bottom for about three to four weeks. I don't know how big people are about candlesticks. We're not a big technical, uh, you know, outfit here, but we found we find tech, uh, candlesticks sometimes to be pretty telling. There's something called a doji, which is where you have a high and a low, but you close in the middle. A high and a low, and you close in the middle. A high and a low and a close in the middle, so it looks like two little sticks, but a, a fat in the center. Anyone can go up and put doji on their screen and look up what a candlestick doji means. But it tends to mean that you're losing momentum in the direction of the doji. So if you're going up and you get dojis, that means you're losing upside momentum. You're you're you're. Those are warning signs of a top and some downside momentum coming, and vice versa. We've seen now three street, straight weekly dojis on this commodity amalgamation index that we that we created um near an important bottom or or support area saying downside momentum has dramatically weakened it, and that this is a sign that the market's probably getting ready to turn up hasn't done it yet but it's a it's a leading indicator to be on guard for some kind of a turn up if we see that index go up which means overall commodities are finally ending or completing this 18 18- month decline in overall commodity prices and we're starting to turn up remember it's like having a tub if you fill the tub with water everything in the tub it will rise at different rates but you're going to have a general rising of overall levels of just about everything now some will go up a lot more some will go up less depending on fundamentals but if the tide is going out most everything also goes out as well and so i think that's also you ask about things to look for watch The overall goldman sachs commodity index um and the bls cash commodity index for a turn up from the secondary low confirming a double bottom i really think that would be and i'm not the only one that looks at this kind of stuff all the algorithms all the computer programs all you know the momentum traders they look at this stuff and all of a sudden it says oh the commodity space is Triggered a technical buy signal, and then it automatically trigger all kinds of buying in different commodities. That's the way these big money centers operate, for better or for worse. That's how they operate. So I think that's another trigger to bring some money back in to the commodity space and bring some excitement back. Is we've really, you know, we've been squeezing this balloon out for eighteen months, and everyone's getting really, really negative now to the point that um, usually such negativity leads to a turn. That's at least been our experience for the last 30 years that we've been doing this.
1: Right on. Okay. Well, Sean, good stuff. As usual, folks I want to reach out to you and get more information about what you're doing over Hack Hackett Financial. What's the best way to do that?
2: Our website is hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We also have a Twitter page at Faradex 11 You can also follow us on our LinkedIn page. We sometimes from time to time make some comments or put post some interviews that we do that go over our climate, our unique climate work. Some of our capital flows work and some of our unique indicators that help us make our recommendations to our farmer and, and trader customers.
1: Right on. And just like usual, if you have a question for Sean or anybody on the podcast, <laughs> go to any of these social media sites. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can go to uh, LinkedIn and at Moving Iron Podcast uh, and Moving Iron LLC on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram, and then you can go over to the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. You can post a question there. If you ask a question, I will ask it to whomever it's directed to, and we'll get that feedback. Uh, Go to movingironllc.com for everything Moving Iron related. There's also a way there that you can contact me there as well. So check that out. Everything Moving Iron related is there, including all the information for the Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee. September 11th through the 13th. Uh, more information about that, send me an email at podcast movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com, and I'll be sure to get back to you. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour. with Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com.